0: Welcome to Questions from the Closet. I'm Charlie Bird. And I'm Ben Shalati. Each episode, we discuss a question that we commonly get asked as LGBTQ Latter-day Saints.
1: We are not trying to answer this question or come to a consensus, but simply sharing our perspectives.
0: Today's question is, how do I move on from
1: past mistakes?
0: Charlie and I are not terribly diverse, and we share many opinions and life experiences. For example, we both don't go to the movie theater that often.
1: However, there are some pretty big differences. For example, I have never seen a rated R movie, and Ben has.
0: I know, scandalous,
1: huh? Ben, I am shocked, and disappointed.
0: Okay, the first radar movie I saw was <laughs> when I was I was fourteen, and I was at a sleepover, and all my friends wanted to watch The Matrix, and I was too embarrassed to say that I couldn't watch a radar movie, so I watched it.
1: Oh my gosh! And it
0: was very good. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then life went downhill after that.
0: Yeah. I mean, here I am today
1: Ta- talking about past mistakes, hanging out with you. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> these are not my mistakes. But honestly, I'm surprised you've never seen a radar movie.
1: Yeah, so a, a lot of it has to deal with me. I was very straight laced growing up, like incredibly, and I guess I still kind of am. But just I actually, I think people view me as kind of a wild card now, which is pretty strange to me. But I am super violence adverse. So like, seeing graphic images is really like offensive to me. It, it like it hangs on me for a long time i have nightmares and so a lot of rated r movies like it shocks me when people are like oh it's rated r but it's just violence there's no sex and i'm like you're like that's the problem i'm like that's it's it's like what's a greater sin murder or adultery well so what are you watching anyway i know that's that's dramatic but but for me like it really affects me to see violence and a lot of rated r movies are for violence and now i'm kind of the point where. It, i mean i've gone almost 28 years without seeing one so it's kind of like Just i've keep also it up. i've also never seen star wars oh wow so i'm like well if i've gone this long like i might as well keep
0: going with it i mean you're sort of missing out it's Some a talking it. point yeah all i know is a dude kisses his sister That's <laughs> it's like, true but he doesn't know it and don't spoil <laughs> it for the people who haven't seen it yeah <laughs> also you never go to the movies um sometimes like with friends but i i rarely initiate a movie yeah going outing i'm the same i like wanted to see in the heights i'm like oh wait till someone invites me and then like someone did but i couldn't go and then no one did and i never saw it yeah. but when i go home i always take my dad to see a movie that's cool. It's like my way to be an adult I'm Like, let me take you to a movie i will buy a movie ticket for you i am an adult we would like to provide a variety of voices and perspectives so today we're joined by Keldy zabriskie
2: hello Kel- welcome Keldy. it's good to be here
0: so tell us a little bit about yourself
2: so, um, I grew up in Utah, pretty much the general Utah youth background was happy in being in primary, had lots of friends played outside, stuff like that around high school and I'm sure this is similar with a lot of the guests you have on. I started to realize that I was not like the rest of my friends in high school i wasn't um super interested. And um, looking in, flirting with all the other boys. Oh, by the way, I was born a, a woman. I mm-hmm. forget to mention that because it's just, that's normal for me to remember. Very uh-huh. surprising for other people. I've got a big beard. I'm a transgendered man. But <laughs> born a lady. Should I start over? No, no you're oh. great. That's right. great. <laughs> I, I, think every, I think everyone's hooked. Yeah. Fantastic. We'd love to hear more. Like Kelsey, so, assigned
0: female at birth.
2: Fantastic. And now has a beard. Now has a beard. So, around high school, I realized I was not attracted to other boys my age like all my friends were. I didn't want to flirt with them. I was not excited to turn 16 so I could go on dates with them. I did not care about any of it. I did realize, however, that I was kind of having crushes on the girls in my school. And this was an issue for me because I was a young woman who had already achieved my Young Woman Recognition Award. Mm. So... Did you have the necklace? I had it. I got it when I was twelve, and you can start doing it when you're twelve. So I was really good wow. You were really into wow, it. Wow, you're mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Had to had to get it done real quick. Were you from like a family different.
0: where you were like you had to do it right away, or was that just like an internal motivation?
2: That was just an internal motivation. Like I was excited to be twelve so I could start doing it, and I think I was just so excited I just finished it before I turned thirteen. So I was just very driven to get it. Anyway, in high school I started realizing I was attracted to women. This was an issue as a very serious, uh, you know, letter to Saint young lady. I was a president in whatever young women's group I was in. And I always was, even when I got older and things like that. So I decided I would ignore that and pray to change and hope that I did. I got myself a boyfriend thinking that would help the process.
0: So the time when you were praying, it wasn't about your gender identity. It was just about who you were attracted to.
2: Yeah, so in in high school, I had no issues with my gender identity. It was all about being a lesbian. This was my first issue in my very, very nice upbringing. My parents were very kind and stuff, but they didn't know about this. So this was all internal stuff happening at the time. Got myself a boyfriend, tried to be straight, figured I could marry this guy. He was the first guy I ever dated. I was like, if I could get married to him, maybe that will make me more attracted to him. I, I
0: cannot <laughs> relate to this story at all. <laughs> like, God, huh? Is this yes. not the common yeah. experience?
2: Well, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with it, like uh, how young women were raised back then in the in the church, and especially just being from Utah my whole life. Like I, I felt like I needed to get married, and mm-hmm. if I was going to do that, I might as well do it with this guy because he was a friend of mine, and we played World of Warcraft together, and it was a beautiful relationship. That sounds so fun. It was. <laughs> so. After high school, we both graduated. I dated him for about two years. Oh, wow. Is this a serious relationship? It was a serious relationship for, yeah. I mean, really, it was, actually. I don't think about that very much. But for a high school (laughs) student, it really was. Two years is a long time. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, like mid-sophomore to senior year. So, yeah, I guess that would be a serious high school relationship. But he moved to Michigan to attend school, and I went to school in Utah. And it was around this time I, I moved out of my parents' house, and I knew that I was still having these attractions to women, and I still wasn't really attracted to men. And I think with the – I would go and visit him in school and stuff, but I think with the distance, it gave me permission to really kind of like see how I was feeling more and see what my options were with that. And eventually I broke up with him, and I, you know I, I told him, like, I'm sorry. I think I'm a lesbian. This is not going to work for me. While I was coming to terms with my sexuality, I was also feeling a lot of uh, feelings of shame and guilt, which I'm sure is a more common experience for a lot of your guests. Maybe not dating a guy for two years in high school, but the shame and guilt. (laughs) Please, I wish uh, I could have. (laughs) (laughs) The shame and guilt, a lot of people feel when they come to terms with their sexuality, being raised in a church or any sort of uh, religious background is something that I'm sure is universal. What, um, what was that like? I, I'm assuming he was the first person you told. He wasn't actually. I never talked to him again. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, I mean, every now and then, like, like maybe twice after I broke up with him, he would like hit me up on Facebook and be like, so what's up? I'm like, well, still a lesbian. And that was about it. Yeah. He, I don't think he was as interested in me as a person as I was in him. He was very straight. I was very not. So So this was like like, what was it like telling someone for the first time? That you were attracted to girls. So it's interest. That's an interesting question. A lot of people have like formal coming out. Where, like, I remember your story. You told your family that you were gay. You came out. To yeah, uh huh. And I'm sure you had a similar experience. Like mm-hmm.
1: in a very, we're gonna have a conversation. Yes, like this where is you would like sit moment. down. Yeah,
2: I never had that. I never did that. I never told my parents I was a lesbian. Technically, I still haven't told my parents that I was a lesbian. I think it's just assumed at this point. <laughs> but what was different for me with those uh, feelings of guilt and shame, instead of, you know, kind of self-destructing, I, I was always a very motivated, task-oriented person, like I was talking about with the little medallion thing you get. Yeah, I wanted to just completely change who I was around. So I would change my social, uh, my social life to be around people who they didn't know I wasn't gay before. And that's exactly what I did with the feelings of shame and guilt. Like we've kind of talked about before, I decided if I'm going to be gay, and if I'm going to like, be separated from my family in eternity and stuff, because I am gay, then I might as well do the fun sins as well. And so I started drinking and, you know, doing smoking weed and a couple of pharmaceutical drugs that are a little bit harder. And I just decided that this is fun. I enjoyed it. It numbed the pain I felt from being, you know, uh, gay and I didn't want to let my parents down. So it numbed that pain. And I started associating with people who did those things. I was in college for my first, the first time I'd moved out for the first time. And so I was around people who never knew I was straight. I was always very masculine presenting. I was never a very beautiful woman. I was a very handsome woman. Mm. I think they probably assumed I was gay. And so I just never actually came out to anyone. I just changed my social surroundings completely.
0: And that was a defense mechanism. Oh,
2: I'm sure it was. Yeah.
0: You were trying to make life easier by being around people that didn't know your, how you'd been in high school.
2: Right. And I would talk about it like I was open then as well. You know, I eventually if I got to be friends with someone, I'd be like, oh, you guys know I used to teach primary for a couple months. And they would be shocked because they probably had always assumed I was the way I was in in college. The whole time. Yeah.
0: And I, I heard you say two reasons you kind of started drinking and drugs. It mm-hmm. was you you kind of felt like what's the point of keeping these rules? Right. And also you were trying to numb the pain you were feeling.
2: Right. Yes, exactly. So, um, You've watched, watched a rated R movie. You have not. I would really doubt either one of you has really gone into substance abuse too much. Probably not. No. I, I would say that's, that's fair. That's a fair o- assumption. O- yeah. Yeah. Less
0: less common. But I've smelled marijuana.
2: Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> It does not smell very good. But yeah, it, it was a fun time. Like people do those substances for a reason. It typically, um, you know, it creates a sense of um, euphoria or pleasure or something like that. Or it's really, really helpful in pushing down things that make you feel bad. You can distract yourself with like the even the physiological effects of any of those drugs will distract you from whatever you're feeling. And so that's exactly what I did for that reason and because I assumed I was already going to suffer from being gay. So I might as well do the things that are enjoyable as well as since. So
0: you said that like the feelings you were pushing down were like the feeling of like being separated from your family forever. Yes. What other feelings were you pushing away?
2: I was, so I know in the LDS religion, this isn't even really a common thought, but I had these weight, like these night terrors for several years leading up to college where I was just like getting dragged into hell and I was terrified of that. Like really weird, vivid dreams. I would have nightmares about it and it was all because I was gay. So, that was also painful. I was very scared. I was scared of being separated from my family. I was scared of like feeling God's wrath for some reason. Yeah. And I know that's not even really a thing that's talked about much in our religion, but I feel um, like that's a really common experience. I, I can relate to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Those night terrors and in fact, I maybe I should be more explicit in asking people but i used to have nightmares or like almost like lucid dreams Mm -hmm. where i would envision that and and one thing i want to point out that you said is we've kind of been talking about it casually of this idea of oh i thought i would be separated from my family for eternity Mm. that is like that's traumatic that is a really deep painful terrifying thought right and of course you would want to escape from that and get away from it somehow. If, you know, I don't know, that's just it's just strange to, that we can all talk about that so casually. Mm-hmm. And I I'm sure Ben you had I don't know if you had similar
0: Not really.
1: I definitely did. I, I was I was terrified of ruining eternity, ruining eternity for me and for them just by existing. Right. And and there was nothing you could do. And so I, I just, I guess I just really empathize with that right. feeling. And I'm sorry
2: that you felt like that. It, it happened. So, but yeah, because it happened, that's how I got going on my, uh, my drug career. <laughs> what do you want to tell us about that? After, um, I was in college, I made all these friends. I ended up dropping out of college after about a year and a half. And I got arrested shortly after for trading some weed for a cigarette so that was my first three felonies from that very small amount of you weed. Got,
0: you got three felonies for I that? I got
2: three felonies for that. So that was um, about 12 years ago. I don't think that happens anymore. But at the time, that was a perfectly reasonable thing to uh, to get three felonies for that amount of marijuana. But that was my first time to jail that day when I got arrested. And I don't think I was really scared when I went to jail either. I kind of just went there and... After the first couple days I think I remember tearing up. I wasn't going to call my mom because if being gay was going to disappoint my mom, surely me being in jail and being a felon was going to disappoint my mom. So my plan in jail is even worse. It's much worse. (laughs) So my original plan was just I'm never going to tell my parents they're going to think I died or something and then I'll just show up in a couple of months after I've served my sentence. But it was my I was eighteen or uh, 19. And it was the first time I ever was in any sort of legal trouble. So I only lasted like three or four days. And then I cried and called my mom. And of course, she got me out. Uh-huh. So <laughs> It sounds like you were pretty numb. Yes, probably. And it, not all of it was, um, you know, the results of drugs, because at that time, I wasn't really into super hard drugs. It was just some weed, some beers, and like I said, some pharmaceuticals. But I think I had to make like a conscious choice as well to kind of just shut everything off. I I was, it was very painful to, um, kind of come to terms with that. And like we were talking about, like, I was terrified of being separated from my family. I was terrified of disappointing them. My family has always been like really great leaders in the church. They're well-known. I was scared of like making them look bad. I didn't want to be that black mark on their reputation. And of course I didn't want to be alone, but if I was going to either have to choose to be alone. Or like be this weird burden on my family. I feel like I kind of chose to be more alone and kind of drive myself and Just away from I my disappear family. Disappear a little bit. Yes.
0: Do you think that's what they wanted?
2: Oh, certainly not. But at the time, and for a very long time, I—that's a habit that I had in my addiction—was driving my family away and trying to get them to like kind of just move on without me. So they wouldn't worry about me. And that way, whatever I was doing wouldn't like be something that would embarrass or ashamed them. Hmm. That, that was a thing that I know I did quite often in fact, but yeah, my parents uh, got me out of jail. I went to court for this charge, these couple charges, and I was required to go to an inpatient rehab which is exactly what you guys would see in like a movie or something like that. You go to a building with a bunch of people and y'all sit around and talk about your feelings for several months. So,
0: all day for several months. All day.
2: So, you live there for a couple of months. My first one was 90 days. This is basically entering like the period of my life where I was just constantly in and out of jail and rehab for about five years. After my first rehab, I met a girl. That I thought was super, super cute, and I was newly sober. I had just graduated rehab, and I actually met her because her boyfriend, she was dating a guy at the time. Her boyfriend went to that rehab with me, and he started doing drugs immediately after he graduated rehab, and he needed to pass a drug test to like not go back to jail, uh-huh. and I hadn't done drugs because really I was only smoking weed and drinking beer. That's not hard to stop, you know? And you can basically just not do that anymore. It's hard to get addicted to either one of those things. But this girl's boyfriend needed to pass a drug test and I had clean pee and he didn't. So he sent his girlfriend to come collect a cup of my pee to give to his boyfriend. These are the relationships you make in the drug world. So (laughs) and I thought she was super cute as I handed her a cup of my pee. But (laughs) what a a gift. (laughs) What a a blessing. Um, About a month after that, actually, I ended up getting arrested for breaking a probation requirement. I wasn't paying a fine because I didn't have a job. So I had to go back to jail. I went into jail. I couldn't get out early that time. I had to be there for a couple of months. And after about a week, the same girl that I thought was super cute rolled into jail. And I was like, wow, it was meant to be. And they sent her up into my cell because I was always very calm and collected. And a lot of the girls were not. And so I was like the little calming influence on them. Mm -hmm. And this girl was hysterical. So they sent her up and we started dating immediately after we both got out of jail. And we dated for a little over three years, but this girl did actual drugs. So this girl was a heroin addict. So once I got out, I started doing heroin with her. And that was one of the bigger mistakes I've made in my life. I became addicted to it right away. It was something that I really enjoyed and it really did a great job of shutting out all of those like shameful feelings that I had. So, yeah. Well,
0: mm-hmm. Kelly, thank you for being so open and honest and sharing, sharing this with us. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you break out of the cycle?
2: So with heroin, it was actually quite difficult. I, heroin is a lot more addictive than those other drugs I had mentioned. I, And I didn't really have a desire to stop doing it for a while. There are like two important things that happened when I was in my heroin addiction. So while dating this woman, I came across the term transgender. And I realized for the first time that transgendered people can be born female and transition into males. Up until this point, I had like seen some things about transgendered women, but I thought that just meant cross-dressers. This was not a thing that was really talked about in like the early 2010s or at least not in Utah in the early 2010s and so I realized that that was a thing that existed you could be a transgendered man you could transition into a man and immediately upon learning that I turned to this woman I was dating I said oh I think this is actually me like this describes me much more accurately than just a lesbian because at this time I was presenting male most of the time even though I wasn't consciously choosing to do that I got mistaken for a man all the time I got cops called on me for using women's restrooms, which was wild. But this woman was not a fan of that. So she told me, no, you won't do that or I'll break up with you. And I desperately needed someone to be in my life who cared about me or who I assumed cared about me because we were dating. And so I just never talked about it again until the other important thing that happened to my heroin addiction about a year later, this woman actually overdosed on heroin and passed away. Oh my gosh. So at that point, I had been living with her for several years. She was my entire life. I didn't really talk to my family. All I had was this woman. So when she overdosed, I moved back in with my parents.
0: Can I, can I say a quick side question? Yeah, Where absolutely. was your family during all this time? Were they reaching out to you? Were you just avoiding them? Like, What was your relationship like? They were
2: like? trying to reach out to me, and I was avoiding them. So this whole period when I was a heroin addict, I would either like live in a trailer, an apartment. I'd bounce around a lot. I was homeless for a couple of months or years. I'm not really quite sure how long it was. But the whole time I had a full-time job, even when I was homeless. So this woman would follow me around and I'd work and I'd come home and we'd do drugs. And that was basically my whole life for about five years. But yeah, my parents would reach out to me and I would just not talk to them. I got them to pay for my cell phone for a couple of years because they figured if they paid for my cell phone, at least they could try talking to me (laughs) every now and then I would like see them to borrow something from the house. Like I was not interested in really being around them because I, I was ashamed of what I was doing. My parents obviously knew what I was doing and they were just concerned about me. Once this woman passed away, then I really had no choice. I had to be with my parents i had to be with my family and what was difficult about that is i was still an addict i was still addicted to heroin i still had these terrible habits of just trying to avoid any sort of responsibility other than maintaining a job because that was absolutely necessary if i was going to get more heroin so my um huge culture shock yeah <laughs> yeah it's quite quite different I, I'm sure they did not enjoy those couple of years I lived with them. I stayed with them for maybe a year after this woman had passed away. And then I think I I can't remember exactly what the circumstances were. I feel like I chose to leave after that. Maybe I was only there a couple of months. but
1: Can I also pop in a question? I'm wondering, you said you read about the term transgender mm-hmm. and made this realization that people assigned female at birth can transition. Yes. And what was that like to, you said it kind of like felt like who you were and it was like these words that you'd never mm-hmm. encountered this idea that was always there, but had never been explained to you. Mm-hmm.
2: What did that realization feel like? It, it felt like someone had turned on a light. Like I was sitting in this dark room where it was me and this woman and drugs. And that was it. And as soon as I read this term and I read about it, I looked up a couple articles. I looked up a couple people who had been through a medical transition and they seemed happy I wasn't happy I wanted to be but I certainly wasn't and I felt like maybe if I have a chance or like any sort of hope in being happy this would be an avenue I could pursue because this feels better I have told this story a couple times but when I was younger like very young like maybe I don't know nine or ten or eleven whenever girls start going through puberty my mom came into my room to tuck me into bed one night, and she told me that I had to start wearing a training bra the next day because my breasts were developing, and I thought she was joking, and when she told me she wasn't joking, I cried for hours. It was never something that I wanted to be. I never wanted to be a woman, even from when at the time I was a child. It was not something that I was excited about. So when I heard that this was an option... There is a scientific process and a medical process that can confirm how I've been feeling. That was something that I thought would be a chance at me to like regain any sort of normal semblance of life. Okay. So, so now you're back in with your parents and then you move out. Mm -hmm. So um, I was homeless for a while, just bounced around. At this point, I just started selling heroin because it was an easier process than working eight hours and then going to buy heroin. So I just started selling heroin. And this lasted for another couple of years. This one passed away in 2012. From the end of 2012 till about mid-2015, I was just doing drugs, selling drugs, going to jail. Getting out, doing drugs, selling drugs, going to jail. And I feel like I was trying to just overdose because I didn't want to figure out how to have a normal life at that point. It had been a long time.
0: Was it like a conscious thing or just...
2: I mean, I, I would say that I was... Passively suicidal at the time. I don't know if that's a thing that people yeah, do. Yeah, passive su- suicidal ideation. Right. So like, I would overdose often. I was in jail. I was declared dead a couple of times, and then I'd wake wow. up and go to jail. But um, it, I just didn't want to do the efforts of making a normal life after I dug this hole so deep. Yeah, you felt like you were past saving. Yes, I was on probation this whole time, which is this, these are all terrible habits to do if you're ever on probation. By the way. One day I decided I'd better just go check on my probation officer. I knew I was going to go to jail because I hadn't seen him in like a year and I have never paid my fines or anything like that. And so it was 2015. What I didn't realize is in my backpack was about 20 used syringes with like um, <laughs> oh a bunch of heroin on them and stuff like that. And so I got to the probation office and I realized this was in my backpack. And I didn't have a car, so I walked there, and I panicked. I didn't know what to do with this backpack, because of course I can't take it into the probation office. So I hid it in the bushes and went and checked in. And the guy's like, "Well, if you pay your fine, I can't. I don't need to take you to jail today. I understand you've, you know, been homeless and things like that." And then someone walks in one of the officers walks in holding my backpack and they're like we found this in the bushes whose backpack is this Oh no <laughs> And so I I did not say it was mine but they rifled through it and of course my items were in there I had like prescriptions with my name on it and so I went to jail looking at getting like 30 new felonies one for each like bit of paraphernalia in my backpack but the probation officer was actually really kind and generous he was a nice guy he told me that he would not give me all these new felonies for all of those, but I had to stay in, stay in jail for about six months that time. So I was in there for a while, and I had to complete an inpatient rehab program in jail, which was not as nice as the not-inside-jail inpatient programs. But I did uh, that in jail.
0: So if you're going to do inpatient, do it out of jail. Do it, <laughs> Do it before you go to jail, yes. <laughs> so just don't go to jail.
2: Yeah, don't go to jail. Okay. So while I was in jail, I had a lot of time to think, And I was thinking that I was getting too old to be going in and out of jail. I was 25 and I didn't want to keep doing this. So my options were either overdose very quickly when I get out of jail and overdose so badly that no one can revive me or fix this and dig like claw out of this hole that I made for myself. And I was thinking for several months, what could I do to fix this? I don't have a place to live. I don't have a job. And I don't really have friends. I have my family, but I've pushed them so far, I don't know if they'll take me back at this point. At the end of all of that, I still feel like I'm not being myself, like I'm not myself. I was still very uncomfortable in my body. Do you guys know what a cafea is? Like one of those... Uh, I do not. It's a big scarf they wear in like, the military in the, in the desert over there. Uh-huh. Those. So I wore one of those... Every day for about two years to hide my breasts, I would wear, uh, like five sports bras to like try and push down my breasts and my ribs were like permanently indented in for several years because of this. So wow. I was trying really hard to hide that I was a woman or I, I didn't want to be a woman. I wouldn't talk out loud to people when I wasn't in jail because they would think I was a man until I spoke because I had a very high voice and they'd and say oh I'm sorry I thought you were a man and they'd feel embarrassed and I'd feel embarrassed it was a problem in my life so I had all of these issues related to my drug addiction and then I had this other issue and while I was in jail I decided the only way I can do this is if I pursue a transition this is the only way this is going to work I was scared that my family wouldn't accept me but honestly at that point I didn't have much to lose because I had already pushed them pretty far so i kind of weighed my options and if my family decided not to accept me for doing a transition then I guess I got what I wanted all of these years and I couldn't really blame them for that so I got out I had not told anyone I was going to do this transition yet my parents were very very kind and they helped me organize a place to stay for a couple of months in a sober living home and so I went there I got a job I was out of jail for about a month working at Subway and after about a month. I was standing at Subway and I was sad. I didn't know why I was working at Subway. This is not like what I needed to do. And I said, well, I might, I, I should probably just go get some heroin. And so this day at Subway, I wanted to get heroin and I thought about it. And instead of doing that, I decided I'm going to try and do this thing. I'm going to try and see if maybe there's just anyone in the county that even prescribes testosterone or what the first step is. Cause I didn't know that's still, even in 2015, that wasn't something that's very common knowledge to come across is how to pursue a medical transition.
0: So it was this hope of maybe being, being able to do something different that kept you from doing
2: heroin again? Yes. Because in jail, I, I thought about it. In jail, I had told myself, if I'm going to do this, it's I have to transition. This is the only chance I really have of doing something different, is pursuing this that I've put off for so long because it seems hard. I know it's expensive. I don't know what my family will say. So instead of getting heroin that day, I just called around and I found an endocrinologist in uh, the county that would see me in like the next couple of days just to have an intake like assessment thing. And once I did that first thing, everything else was actually really easy in pursuing a medical transition. But I just had to do that one thing and start the process. So... After that, I was able to get many appointments and, you know, I got on hormone replacement therapy and, um, you know, I did that for, I think, a year until I got my first surgery and then my next surgery and things just started building on themselves. And every time I took that next step, I felt a little bit more like I did not hate myself or my body. I liked myself more as time progressed. I found people that were in recovery that I grew very, very close to. And I was um, talking to you before this show, my roommate was one of the only people I would talk to when I first got out of jail. He was in recovery with me in the same program as me. Yeah. And you know, he was this big muscle guy, and I wanted to be a big muscle guy, even though I was a little skinny gal. And so I decided I'm just going to follow this guy around the gym and do whatever he does. And so that's what I did. It worked. It it worked. You are now a big muscle guy. (laughs) You could totally beat either of us up. (laughs) (laughs) But I was able to like make this really good friend who understood where I was. He knew that I was transitioning and he didn't think I was a weird or bad person for it. Like he was a very good friend and he would encourage me to push myself at the gym. We'd hang out together and through him I was able to meet other people and so I was able to form this little community of people that knew I was transitioning, didn't think I was a complete weirdo for it, and would actually encourage me to follow, uh, like, a sort of path that would lead to me being a good man instead of just a sad drug addict. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Kelly if I were to kind of distill some principles from what you said, mm-hmm. the things that really helped you were to make tough choices to make change like yes. there was something there was something in your life that wasn't working so you had to change that and then also being with people who were going who were aware of what was going on in your life and still were okay with you and supportive of you and let you follow them around in the gym right absolutely
1: yeah. that's really cool i think it's fascinating to think of you as a girl in jail because just i i mean i've only known you post transition and you are very male presenting mm-hmm. like and, and so this story is I don't know what my point is other than like, wow, thanks for sharing that, like for taking us on this whole journey. I'm sure talking about this is hard, you know, but also I think so often I just think about how I would have judged you Mm -hmm. in 2015. Mm -hmm. So I was recently home from my mission and like the most celestial me, you know, (laughs) um, doing everything right. And I just think of how I would have thought about you who is, Similar age to me, addicted to drugs, in and out of jail this whole time. Mm -hmm. And I feel really bad for the way I would have thought about you. And I think recently one of the things I've learned over and over in the past few years is that bad decisions aren't usually from bad people. It's coming from an unmet need. When people are, are making mistakes and using drugs or viewing pornography or using coping mechanisms a lot of times is to escape pain mm-hmm. or fulfill some sort of need that's not being met and this is just another example of of the way i think we can judge people without knowing what they're going through and and not understand that there's unmet needs you know it's just it's it's sobering it's
0: humbling right yeah kelly let's say there's a listener who's like stuck in some kind of rut that they, they don't want to be in mm-hmm. what advice would you give for them to Like, move out of that rut.
2: I think some general advice I would give to anyone who's kind of just um, stagnated in a bad place is to be a little introspective and see what your needs are. Because what you were just saying, Charlie, is a lot of like the poor decisions we make are a result of trying to fill a need or suppress something painful. And that's something that I agree with 100%. But that would be what. I would encourage anyone kind of stuck somewhere to do first is see what that need is or what is it that's so painful that you're stuck here? Why are you stagnant? What is the emotional need that's not being met? And then once you can identify that, figure out what you would need to do to address it, to move forward. Cause that first step for me anyway, was the most difficult one. Um, Once I had identified how I get out of this, was just taking that first step, making that first call after that you gain momentum and it gets easier with every choice you have to make to get you somewhere away from that dark place where you are stuck. That'd be my advice anyway.
1: It kind of reminds me scripturally of the concept of faith and that you plant something and water it, take care of it and see if it's growing. And if it's growing, you you keep moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the, the idea to plant a change can be the most difficult part because it means exercising faith and it means turning around and and no longer running from who you are or what you feel mm-hmm. or this like the, the discordance inside of you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So Kelly, this so you had a life where you were in and out of jail doing drugs and estranged from your family more or less. So now it sounds like things are good. You're you're sober, you're working, you're close to your family. Mm-hmm. Does, does your past like weigh you down? Like like how does your past affect you now?
2: I I actually think it's very freeing to be very open about my story and where I've been. I couldn't really say for sure whether other people feel similarly, but I enjoy knowing where I was and looking at where I am today and seeing how I've improved and changed the conditions in my life and changed how I react to the conditions in my life a lot. That's something that brings me a lot of pride. I also like being open and available for people to talk to, so they know that they're not the only person experiencing this. Whoever wrote that little article or blurb about being trans back in 2000 and, uh, 2000 and I don't know thirteen or whatever because that one person was very open about their life, it opened a new world of possibility for me where I could dig myself out of this hole I had made for myself so i I like that I had a difficult past. I think that made me the person that I am today. And I think the person I am today is someone who can help other people out of where they feel stuck.
0: Yeah. have the, So I, I think this is really beautiful. Just like looking at your past as how it brought you here. And also your desire to help other people. Were there times when it embarrassed
2: you? I, I think I was really more embarrassed when, uh, <laughs> When I was a trend in my early transition, I would get embarrassed sometimes, but that was about transitioning. Not really ever about where I came from as an addict. I think in my addiction, I was very embarrassed because I wasn't really on the other side of it. I was just this mess and I felt like a burden to everyone around me. But once I got clean and started making those right steps into, you know, being a happy person that didn't need any of that to kind of just even survive, I was never really embarrassed of it after that. Could you walk us through what your life looks like now? Sure. So uh, I manage a grocery store in the Valley. It's really nice. I've worked there for almost six years. I actually got a scholarship to go to school through that place I work. And it's not like a degree or anything. I got to be a certified retail management person. So I have, it's, it's cool. It's, that's amazing we we need retail (laughs) yes so if you ever need someone to manage retail for you you let me know but uh you're their guy yeah (laughs) so i uh, was able to go to school i have this job i recently bought a house with the same friend that i met in my early transition we live there with a third friend we have a couple of dogs that we love very much Let's see, I'm in a couple of book clubs. So I have like interest and in hobbies today, which was never something I was able to do when I was in my addiction. And the only hobby I really was able to afford was somehow finding more money so I could get more drugs. But I would say I'm generally a very happy person, which is nice.
0: Yeah. Would you feel comfortable telling us about your faith?
2: Yeah, no problem. I am actually not an active member of the church. I would consider myself not a member of the church really at all. But I actually wouldn't even consider myself spiritual, but I'm a happy person. And that to me is, I guess I could be considered some sort of spirituality. I like to help people. I believe in the resilience of people helping each other. I believe in community. I don't know if those are spiritual principles, but they might be. I never went back to church after I um, started my transition, and I don't really have a desire to because I found community elsewhere and i don't know if that's something that your listeners really care to hear but you can find community and if you can find community in your church that's also fantastic find it wherever you can
1: i agree i think you are a very happy person and something that's i just want to point out i met you through your dad mm-hmm. doing an an lgbtq panel at byu and i just he was so proud of you mm-hmm. and he's just a jolly guy he's so chipper but I, I just remember like watching you two interact and just seeing how proud of you he was. It's a stark contrast to you being afraid that your family would reject you starting way back in high school mm-hmm. with those first thoughts. And then leading through, you know, like being a lesbian and then transitioning and, and all of these different areas in your life when you were afraid that your parents wouldn't love you. Mm-hmm. And they do. And I just I think that's something important to point out for anyone who feels that way.
0: I just want to echo that. I ran into your dad on campus today randomly, and I was like, I'm going to see Kelty tonight. I was like, oh my gosh, tell him I say hi. <laughs> my boy. <laughs> yeah, you can just tell that he's very proud of you and loves you a lot. Yeah,
2: he's a good man. Yeah, I, I do think that's a cool thing that maybe more people should consider is it's scary to take those first couple of steps, especially when you're transitioning or coming out, I would imagine. It's hard to initiate those processes, and a lot of the young trans people I talk to are very scared that their parents will reject them when they begin their transition or tell their parents they're beginning their transition. But what's cool is generally, and this isn't always the case, but generally the people I've known or the people I've like, had the pleasure to watch like grow and progress in their transition is people will, that truly care about them as people will typically move towards them so they can meet somewhere in the middle, even if it's something that their lifestyle or religion isn't super aligned with. Yeah, The person is usually so important to a family member or friends that they will be a little bit more open-minded and progress with you. So it's a thing that a lot of people can move in that progressive area together, including your family. Love that. My, my dad does a LGBT panel now. Yeah. He, did, he did not do that before I transitioned. So. <laughs> I would just like to point out that there are always resources. There are more resources now than there were back when I started my transition. Even if you're in the area where this podcast takes place, there are resources all around, even in the middle of like a town, USA. <laughs> um, and especially with online communities, it's really easy to find places where you can go. And if you are wondering if you are trans or anything like that, a great place to start would be to just find a gender therapist that is a specified therapist And a field of psychology where you can go and they can help you navigate those questions. You don't need to do this alone. Even if you feel alone, you're really not. There are many people in the world who have trodden this path and tried to set it up so it would be easier for the next uh, people to come along to kind of navigate their way through it.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I have one last question for you. Sure. Let's imagine that someone has a loved one who has really dug themselves into a hole Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be with drugs, but just like really dug into a hole and they want to help them get out Mm -hmm. What what do you like? What could your family and friends have done to help you get out?
2: My my family actually did a really I think they did with me exactly what most people should do They tried to reach out to me. They tried to connect with me but towards the end of my addiction. And I think this is something they learned themselves through a a process of trial and error is they refuse to continue enabling me. I would, when I first started, I would ask them for like gas money or, you know, grocery money or something like that. And I hardly ever spent it on the things I asked for. I would spend it on drugs. And, you know, that's a really obvious way of enabling someone is giving them material things that will help them like continue to make their poor choices. But another way of enabling them is just acknowledging what they're doing and not expressing that they're upset with it. I think it's really important to let people fail and let them realize that their failures are from their actions, not from anything other than that. And I know that sounds very harsh, but that's very important, I think, to helping someone get better is let them fail first. I've uh, heard the phrase, uh, we grow at the rate of pain. And I think that that was very applicable in my life. And I feel like that's probably applicable in other people's lives as well.
0: Yeah. So love people, but also let them experience the consequences of their choices. Yes.
2: Yeah. I I feel
1: like in a way uh, it's reminding me of just helping people realize the accountability they have Mm -hmm. while still hopefully helping them fulfill the need they're trying to fulfill. Right. Well, I just think you're amazing. This, you have a super inspiring story. You're a very, like you have great energy as a person and I'm really like, feel honored to know you and thank you so much for being willing to put yourself out there this way. It's it's really commendable.
0: Yeah, and it's impressive that you were able to pull yourself out of that hole and really get to a place where you have a beautiful, thriving life.
1: Thank you. Yeah, Thank you, you rock. Oh, and, you <laughs> could, and you could beat us up. <laughs> and you, you probably could beat us up. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to go over your gym regimen after this because I need to take some. Yeah, minutes. we should just follow you around.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. If you have enjoyed this or other episodes, please consider leaving a review, following us on Instagram or Facebook at Questions from the Closet, or sharing this podcast with someone you love. As always, please remember that we do not represent The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Brigham Young University. We are not trying to be prescriptive or tell anyone what to think or
0: what to do. You heard three perspectives and there are many, many more. We encourage you to listen to other voices and hear a wide variety of experiences. If you would like to submit a question or share a comment about today's episode, you can email us at questionsfromthecloset@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time.